that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor of the North American Anglican, and I'm joined today by Father Isaac Rayberg. Father? Hello, this is Father Isaac Rayberg, the rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas, and the canon for liturgy in the Anglican Diocese of the West of uh, Cana. Well, we've got an exciting sort of conclusion to Paul Elmer Moore's The Spirit of Anglicanism essay episode lined up for our listeners today. Uh, before we dive directly in to the text and put a nice uh, ribbon on this essay, any, um, any final thoughts or sort of uh, overall evaluation that you'd like to offer, Father? What, what are your thoughts? Was more um, worth, worth reading? Would you recommend this to someone? Um, yes, with qualifications. No, not at all. What do you think? Um, so this was my first time going through more. Um, I know some of some of um, us have 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 had more experience with his with his uh, essay here, and um, in general, I liked it a lot. Uh, he 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 knows his history really well, but but you do see his Anglo-Catholic biases, and I think sometimes that brings in some um, uh, some bad history. You know, even as as much as he does know his history there's there's just some some coloring of that so i think i'd say recommended with reservations just just realizing that there's a a little bit of bones you're going to have to spit out as you chew the meat yeah that's that's a good appraisal i think i agree with it 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 seems to me that if uh the presence of bones were to sort of deter someone altogether then there's a whole lot of um sort of Anglican historiography that you just have to avoid altogether. And um, I'm more of the mind that you sort of dive in, see what's, what uh, is worthwhile that someone has to say, and just be open to the fact that you're going to have to uh, part ways on this or that thing. Um, and what, when you sort of talk about his Anglo-Catholic biases and his historiography... Um, one thing I picked up is he definitely is guilty of this thing that I think a lot of us are very often of importing the issues of his age into um, a historic text from a very different age with very different issues. Um, And I think one thing that we can be cautious of is it's not as though the Caroline Divines can't have something to say to what's going on in our lives or in the church today, but it's rather this other issue of trying to interpret what they were intending at the time in light of very modern controversies, etc. 
Yeah, difference between interpretation and application, um, which, right. which you know, as 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 this is one of the things we always learn in hermeneutics is is to have um, exegesis, not eisegesis. And there are places where he eisegetes his issues uh, of his day into into their text. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think, but you know, that's that is a danger, like you said, we all have. Right. Uh, it's a slippery slope between that application and that interpretation. Um, but all that being said, I am excited to dig in here to Roman numeral number nine of the spirit of Anglicanism and see what kind of uh, overview or general final statement uh, Moore is going to leave us with. Maybe he'll surprise us. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. And it's, it's been a long run. It's been a good one. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm going to dig in here and let's see what he has in store. The Spirit of Anglicanism by Paul Elmer no Moore, uh, section Roman numeral 9. It may appear to some who have followed this essay in its endeavor, admittedly tentative, to get at the principles directing the course of the Anglican Church that the outcome is a diminished Christianity. Such was not the intention of the essayist, nor is it the belief of the joint editors of this volume. Uh, readers note, keeping in mind that this volume is Anglicanism by Moore and Cross and a compendium of 17th century uh, original snippets. Um, Yep, back to the reading. Rather, as they have collected these documents from the stalwart divinity of a past age, they have been impressed by the richness and depth and beauty of the religious life to which that literature as a whole bears witness. In particular, they have discovered no trace of diminution in a theology which aimed at separating the accretions to the faith from the dogmas necessary for salvation. It might seem that in so insisting on the kernel of truth as in distinguished from its accessories, the church was playing into the hands of Lord Herbert of Cherbury and the others who were laying the foundation of deism upon an elemental set of beliefs, which, as they supposed, were common to all the religions of the world. And it cannot be denied that after the schism of the non-jurors, a portion of the established church fell for a time under the chilling sway of that movement. But in reality, the refrigeration of the 18th century theologians was owing to their loss of grip on the very dogmas which their predecessors had singled out. The fact of the Incarnation, with its corollary in the sacramental life, was the one thing that could find no place in the five points of Lord Herbert's universal religion, and that was inimical to the whole trend of deism, as it is to the kindred religiosity of the present day. That's a good stopping point, sort of partway through the paragraph there. So, Father, what do you think about Moore's, uh, he's sort of anticipating a counterclaim 
that when the 17th century Anglicans were um, parsing through what they consider to be Roman accretions and the essentials of the faith, um, as the 39 Articles do, that they were somehow laying the grounds for an essentialist form of religion that would eventually become deism. I think his point is is really good here, um, because the that's that's going to oftentimes you know speaking of those Anglo Catholic biases, that's going to be the typical claim of those who treat Anglicanism just as a um, halfway house to Rome or to the East is that um, yeah the Anglican tradition or or really any any form of kind of higher church Protestantism is just a diminished form of Christianity. And, and, I, and I think he's absolutely right in, in, his, um, in, in his statement that that's just not the case. Um, but, but there is that danger of, of turning into an essentialist sort of thing. I mean, we, we see that in the deism of, of um, Lord Herbert's days, um, that, that kind of had its big influence on the American church at the beginning, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, our first prayer book was, or rather the first proposed American prayer book was absolutely terrible. Um, those of y'all that are prayer book historians, it's, it's a, it was a joke, and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad it didn't pass. But you, you still see the same kind of that in the mindset for the American prayer book revisions to the present day. Um, but but even worse, you see that in the mindset of some of our some of the communion now, where um, you know, there was a headline or something published recently by the Church of England regarding their um, uh, funeral rites, and and it's it's very much playing with universalism and things like that. Yikes! Um, which which is just not. I mean, unfortunately, that's not uncommon in parts of the communion today, but. As Moore said, the point, the, the reason why that happened is that they lost their grip on the very dogma that their predecessors had singled out. They right. chunked the essentials as well as the accretions. Yep, and and to say that we can never look at our body of work and say, this seems extra, <laughs> or we're not so sure about this anymore, but this this clearly has been true from the get-go, you could say, um, that we can never have that kind of reform, which has clearly took, taken place throughout the history of the church, right? Even Roman Catholics will say, well, there's proper reform, and then there's the, what you folks did, you know? So Trent, Trent was in a reformation just as much as the reformation was. Right, absolutely. And, um, and, and a, a definition they, they they trimmed away what they thought was excess and and determined their own uh, new set of essentials. So yeah, the, it's a, it's sort of like saying, oh well, you're the sort of guy who shaves his beard. I suppose you think a human being could just be a hand then, if you want. You right. Know, so like, no, no, just because you know, just because we believe that some things can be amended doesn't mean that we think that um, these really important uh, other items, like say torsos, heads, etc., um, are unimportant and can be disposed of if it means some sort of broad agreement with other bodies, so to speak. 
and so yeah, I think it's that that sort of argumentation is just wrong, and wrong-headed, and you, and Protestants do get this a lot. It's sort of well, you paved the way for these other ideas, and to some extent that might be true. Um, in order to get at the truth, very often you will be enabling a, a multitude of heretics. I'm not sure if that's the fault of the reformer or the theologian who's orthodox um, and actually cares about the truth. I think that we can put the blame on the heretics themselves. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really glad he uh, addresses that sort of potential counter-argument because it really does get at some of the central claims against the Reformation that, quite frankly, have plenty of audience and get plenty of traction in certain circles even today. Right. Yeah, good, 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 good uh, qualifier there, more. Yes. I take it all back. <laughs> <laughs> we, we'll put a slightly bigger bow on this, uh, on this essay when we're done with it. That's right, that's right. Um, shall I pick up the next part? Sounds good. All right, so um, about two-thirds down the way in that paragraph. As for the cavalier who would admit this distinction, yet would criticize the Anglican position as tending to narrow the scope of Christianity, it may be proper to ask whether he has ever really considered the infinite riches of the Incarnation and the Eucharist, their inexhaustible meaning, the depth and breadth of their transforming power upon conduct and character, the glory of their promise. The Anglicans were here in the great tradition of antiquity. They, as Cudworth and others knew, were but taking up the doctrine of Irenaeus and Athanasius, Hatheas, Geganen, Anthropos, Hina, Hemas, and Heauto Theopoime. The concentration may bring gain rather than loss, to intensify may be to move toward more of strength and certainty. We can remember the words of Christ himself, his last perhaps upon the cross, it is finished. It was the utter simplicity of the Christian faith concentrated upon an act of God's merciful condescension that inspired one of the most modern and most Caroline of George Herbert's poems. Could not that wisdom which first broached the wine have thickened it with definitions and jagged his seamless coat had that been fine with curious questions and divisions? But all the doctrine which he taught and gave was clear as heaven from whence it came. At least those beams of truth which only save surpass in brightness any flame. Beautiful stuff from Mr. Herbert. <clears throat> And as much as Her Herbert is, you know, counted as one of the Caroline divines, um, the Puritans kind of claim him as well, don't they? They're kind of kind of proto, or kind of a maybe not oh, the Puritans, but the uh, the much more evangelical wing claim Herbert as well, don't they? Hmm. I I'm not entirely sure. Although um, one thing that might back that up is uh, I believe his. Um, some of his poetry has a very sort of reformational um, justification undertones. 
where it's sort of the unworthy sinner being um, embraced and welcomed by the, the redeeming Savior. So that, that may be the case, but I'm not sure. Uh, either way, I like how he starts off by saying, um, if you're going to make this claim, then clearly you haven't quite considered the depth of the Incarnation in the Eucharist. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, um, I don't know, Father, what, what do you think about his sort of uh, drawing on those particular doctrines as saying um, this sort of thing ought to keep us far afield from anything like deism? Yeah, I, I definitely have seen um, a tendency to, 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 to consider Anglicanism's um, distinguishing feature as being incarnational. And I'm not sure how much of that is kind of bringing in some of those later, later issues that, that, that get those later tendencies that really have their genesis more in the, in the Tractarians and, and bringing things back to the Eucharist, to the fathers, mm. which I think those are good parts of what happened in the Oxford movement, by the way. Sure. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that's a that's a good a good thing he pointed out. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily what Hooker or Cranmer or Usher, some of that that first generation, first couple generations of English divines would have characterized us with. But certainly by the by the Caroline divines and later, that that does seem to be be an emphasis, and it's a very good one, I think. Yeah, and and I think in a way it's sort of an emphasis of something that should be just squarely within orthodoxy, right? Right, and and part of what I sort of take more to be doing here is to say that when you remove extraneous um, doctrines to reveal what's essential and true and and central to the Christian faith, you're not um, reducing Christianity. You're actually uncovering what makes it even stronger to resist errors such as deism. It's sort of like saying, well, you have, um, you have 20 lassos and you can either um, put one lasso on... Uh, 20 objects in a this this analogy is already out of hand but <laughs> 20 <laughs> objects in in your rancher's uh field um and hope to come away with a bowl or you can put all 20 of them on your bowl you know and it's like that's going to be a stronger bind and, and it, i think that there's a sense in which the reformers and the carolines removing extraneous things and, and putting more emphasis, more effort on more essential doctrines like the Incarnation um, made for a more robust and hearty, uh, you could say, orthodoxy that could withstand anything that might seek to deny the Incarnation or those central tenets of the faith, right? It was a strengthening of the core Rather, rather than just a, a numerical reduction of doctrines to be believed, so to speak. 
Yeah, and, and that's that's something about about the Anglican tradition is it has had the potential and has gone through many good reform movements mm -hmm. um, that have made it that that have been strengthened. I mean, I don't think I don't think anybody would expect things to look exactly the way it did in Cranmer's day or even in Taylor's day. Um, it just depends on which Facebook groups you belong to, I think. But. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and yeah. So I mean, yeah, we, we've 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 been able to have have good reform movements that have kept things alive, even in the midst of of some bad bad institutional issues like some of what we've seen nowadays. Um, right. You know, and and I, I find it very interesting. For example, that the the evangelical movement and the and the tractarian movement grew up right around the same time yeah i think so they they and they both seem to have been sort of uh you know dare i say necessary re-emphasis uh, upon things that had been neglected right um, in in the body of the church at the time right so, yep, I, I agree with you there, which, of course, means that a bunch of people on either side probably just got really mad at us, but <laughs> that's okay. You're allowed. We are the miserable offenders. Indeed, indeed. We'll, we'll claim it. Um, well, with that being said, let me take this next uh, shorter paragraph here. It was a favorite thesis of Baron von Hugel that the English church, with all its excellencies, has failed in producing the variety and depth of the saintly life to be found within the Roman communion. And this, in a manner, may be conceded. Naturally, in the matter of variety, it could not be expected that Christianity manifested through the temperament of a single people at a given time should produce as many different types of holiness as a communion embracing a number of divergent nationalities. But if one will compare the lives of Walton with, let us say, the biographies of contemporary saints and mystics of a neighboring country collected by Abbe Bremond, it is not at all clear that the advantage lies with Roman Catholicism. And if to the little group commemorated in Walton's inimitable pages, one adds Andrews and Barrow and Taylor and Traherne and Henry Moore and Sir Thomas Brown and Ken, one will have a striking variety ranging through the man of prayer, the great scholar, the golden-mouthed orator, the romantic dreamer, the plot platonic idealist, the devout physician, and the irreproachable prelate. That, that's a good statement, too. Um, and I would, also, I would also kind of add to what he's saying here that um, some of the things that are considered saintliness kind of in a folk way um, are not necessarily so scripturally speaking if that makes sense hmm. like there's there's a lot of this expectation of well um you know a certain type of saintliness is to 
uh, wall yourself off from the rest of the world. You know, never marry, never have a family. And, oh, isn't that guy a saint because he's um, sequestered? Sure. You know, th- that sort of thing where, where, as the reformers rightly pointed out, that's just not really a scriptural concept. <laughs> I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost a man-made holiness. Um, and, and that sort of thing will creep in, you know, to all, all the religions. But I think, I think that we, we do need to beware of just assuming saintliness is what another tradition says it is rather than looking, looking to what it, what it is scripturally speaking. Right. And that sort of gets into this idea from the reformers, especially the English reformation, which was to sort of collapse the good aspects of monasticism into the lives of ordinary Christian people. Right. And so the daily divine office is placed in the prayer book and almost immediately you find people using these devotions in their own homes. And this is sort of this simplification. This, it's not to say that um, there, there's nothing good that came from certain, a certain monastic type vocation, but rather to say um, that doesn't make you more special than the man who has to go out and work in the field or the woman who cares for children or, or does her own work. And, you know, that, that the normal Christian life is um, one that can be saintly and holy as well, which, of course, again, in as in so many ways, the Roman Catholic Church will say this exact same thing now. If you ever turn on EWTN, they'll say, oh, yeah, you should try to be a saint. Uh, what else is there? I believe I've heard them say. And uh, it's like, yeah, well, we're glad you jumped on board finally. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and how much how much of those things that happened in Vatican II really were um, the Roman Church looking to get the best of what Protestantism had been doing for almost 500 years at that point? Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, if you ever hear about a Roman Catholic Bible study, or <laughs> right, right, or if if their liturgy happens to be in a language they understand. Or, you know, any of these things, if they're having communion in both kinds, uh, you know, if, if their priest actually will have a conversation with you. I mean, these are, these are um, odd, very Protestant qualities that have seeped into the Catholic Church. And, and there's probably a group of traditionalists out there who think that these are bad things. So, <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard to... to make an evaluation of, of another community but um, you know, speaking for you know from Moore's perspective it does seem that this is yeah, again a very valid point and I would just say even uh, given his own historic moment and uh, the difference between theirs and ours is that the Anglican communion is so much more vast than it was in Moore's time yeah that's very true and, um, you know, you being a Cana priest, um, having uh, the Church of Nigeria and GAFCON and this sort of global south 
um, another reform movement, revival movement, you could say, within within the body of the Anglican Communion. Um, we've seen a many different nationalities and and uh, forms of saintliness, you could say, that have uh, emerged. So. The picture looks a bit different even than it did in Moore's time, and he's writing about a time that was centuries prior to himself. Yeah, there really was no such thing as an Anglican communion in the time of the Caroline Divines, and it was, I think, in its absolute infancy um, at the time of Moore. Yes, I mean, I, I think that missionary work had happened but i don't think we had all of these uh established national provinces that were sort of flourishing the way that we see them now so yeah um interesting stuff well father do you want to take this next passage and uh we'll see if uh more throws us any curveballs or just uh <laughs> sets us down gently we'll see yeah which let's, way let's he goes. get into that We may grant that among them all there is no one who stirs the poetic imagination quite as does St. Francis of Assisi. But in the first place, such a character as St. Francis, coming before the Reformation, does in a sense belong to England of the 17th century almost as much as to France or Catholic Germany of the same age. For Anglicans, though in the heat of controversy they may have spoken uncharitably of Romanism, did not forget that, as Hooker reminded the Puritans, their fathers had served God and found salvation in communion with the Pope. And secondly, they might say, or we might say for them, that though a St. Francis could scarcely be expected in England at any time, neither could a Hooker or a Ken be imagined in Italy. One star differs from another in glory, and the galaxy of English saints sheds a light very precious for the world. Another good point by Moore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is this is fun because um, I was having a uh, sort of heated conversation once with a, a friend who had also been raised evangelical, but he had become Roman Catholic. And um, his... Oh, one point that he kept making was, so you're saying that the Church of Trent is not the church of St. Francis. And I was like, well, what I'm saying is that we have as big a claim on him as you do. Right, (laughs) right. He was just (laughs) not happy with that implication. And this is so often, I find, um, in modern evangelicalism, is when your form of quote-unquote Protestantism, and it really isn't, it's very often some sort of watered down, you know, almost almost Anabaptist in its sort of polity, um, when it lacks any historic sort of creedal, um, liturgical, sacramental connection, then you never really grasp what the real Protestant claims are. And the claims of the Reformers were, we're the real Catholics. Right. Right? Right. We're doing this Reformation thing so that we can be more Catholic, not less. And if you don't understand that and you go from sort of watered-down evangelicalism into 
what frankly is probably watered down Roman Catholicism. And that's not to say that there aren't robust forms of each of those traditions. But, you know, the most robust thing is generally not the most common. I think you can miss this broader point altogether. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to stand there with more. And I don't know if this was a big sticking point for the Carolines, but for me, I think it's legitimate. I'm going to say Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, St. Francis, you know, these guys are as much um, within our sort of toolbox and our history and our lineage as they are those of Roman Catholics. And we see this even in the Book of Homilies where um, it's the most common way they do things is they're going to quote from Scripture, um, they're going to illustrate with Scripture, and then they're going to illustrate with Augustine and Chrysostom and, and, and who, who, mm-hmm. who knows who else. I mean, all the major... Um, saints of the undivided church um, you don't see as much from after the division folks like a saint francis or a thomas aquinas but even but even that i mean how, how many saint francis anglican churches are there i mean there's a sure. there's an t- absolute ton of them i don't know too many thomas aquinas anglican churches but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean that yeah. sort of thing happens all the time i agree and uh yeah i'm really glad that this that sort of follow-up point to his uh, previous statement was included there. Um, yeah. That being said, I actually thought that was a long, a longer paragraph, but it turned out to be just two short ones, and uh, apparently my eyesight isn't what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I can, I can uh, read this next bit, unless we have anything more to share about St. Francis... Um, they, Father, are you a big St. Francis fan? Uh, sermon to the to the birds and all that. Um, I I I'm not as much of a St. Francis. Um, I haven't really dived dived into him very much. Um, I love the San Damiano cross. That's probably my favorite mm. um, piece of religious art. I have several all over the place. Um, yeah, the San, the San Damiano cross is just just great, and that's that's the traditional Franciscan um, cross for for those of y'all that aren't familiar with it. Um, and that's uh, an Eastern cross, is it not? Um, it's it well, it's it's kind of it's in a very icon um, Eastern icon type of a style, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the, according to the way the story is, is that um, Damiano was a little or San Damiano was a little chapel that was falling to ruins um, near Assisi and St. Francis had a vision from the Lord that he was to rebuild the church and so he thought that meant rebuilding this little chapel at first. Right. And um, so as he was rebuilding it he comes across this piece of artwork and he does some restoration and and I I think the the legend goes that the Jesus on the cross, you know, kind of came to life and spoke to him in one of his visions or something like that. Um, I might be, I might be getting that wrong. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not particularly um, well read on St. Francis beyond some very basics. Well, and hagiography is a uh, tricky, tricky territory when it comes to the details, but oh, um, absolutely. that, that does remind me actually of another encounter I had with a, a Roman Catholic friend that was actually more complimentary and coming from a cradle Catholic, which I sometimes find uh, tend to be a little less defensive than uh, friends who 
maybe had a similar starting point but chose a different ending point sort of deal. But I remember sort of describing the the situation of Anglicanism and the Anglican communion and the sort of rampant error and the sort of failure of leadership that we were facing and uh, along with uh, some the really valiant efforts that people in um, GAFCON and the ACNA but also in the continuing churches and you know that there, there really are people that are sort of um, holding the line but also you know trying to rebuild this thing to um, something like its former glory or maybe some something better you know God willing and uh, it, his his reaction was well very happy and he said well it seems like you have a Franciscan um, sort of mission to rebuild the church which I thought was interesting so it, it you know the story of St. Francis does have an interesting corollary to um, that of Orthodox Anglicanism uh, within what may seem like uh, just crumbling institutions <laughs> all around and we do see that one of the one of the marks of the pre-Reformation times was these major saint figures like Francis, like Dominic, um, to lead reforming movements, and that would usually turn into a new monastic order and that sort of thing. But it would also have greater implications on the rest of the church. And I think what happens at the time of the Reformation is just that the, um, frankly, the papacy rejects the 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 reforming movement right yeah and and in in an odd way the the new order the new monastic order that is um brought about by the reformation is the the order of the household Mm -hmm. it's interesting huh well more has given us more to consider than i think he even intended but um that is that is good food for thought How about I take this last little paragraph here? It might even be argued with plausibility that the saintly type of the future, as the mediatorial work of Christ is better understood, will conform rather to the Anglican than to the medieval model. Anglicanism will never become formally the religion of the world, nor has Canterbury any ambition to usurp the place claimed by Rome. But there is reason to believe that a liberal ethos of Christianity resembling the developed, that developed by Englishmen in their clear-eyed opposition to the pseudo-antiquity of the Reformation and to the tenacious medievalism of the Counter-Reformation will more and more prevail in the Holy Catholic Church, the image of the Anglican branch of that brotherhood rising before a mind imbued in the literature from which the following documents are compiled is of one that rejoiceth as a giant to run his course. Here endeth the more essay. <laughs> and that's a good way uh, to end, I think, yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. I mean, he ends with a, another sort of dish on 
the uh, pseudo antiquity of the Reformation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, you know, one thing I've taken away from more is that while I remain convinced that the English Reformation was directly influenced by and sort of in contact with the Continental Reformation, I do think it, the English had their own sort of spin on things. I think each, each you know, sort of uh, community of reformers did. And, um, you know, there may be this sort of, um, you know, there's a reason why the English church didn't produce anything as exhaustive as a Book of Concord. But they did produce something as exhaustive as a Book of Common Prayer. You know, what is the unique character of this English Reformation? And what is its inheritance? And is it a sort of liberality in one respect, um, not compromising of essential doctrines, but um, permitting uh, uh, maybe a broader spectrum of interpretation on... Uh, things that are open to interpretation while having uh, a stronger formal kind of influence on the liturgy and the life of the church, especially its uh, polity. Uh, what do you think about that, Father? Yeah, I do think the genius of the English Reform Reformation was a, a, a form of kind of back-to-basis simplicity that was... Um, not necessarily embraced by everybody else in the Reformation. You know, some of the uh, sacramental battles between the Reformed and the Lutheran, um, you know, are, are the kind of thing that would vote off the island people from prior, you know, from the Unified Church, some of our major doctors right. of the church. And, mm -hmm. yeah, and so... so I think it's a good thing that we don't have anything quite as exhaustive as the Book of Concord. Um, I like that the 39 articles are not as exhaustive as Westminster or Heidelberg. Right. Um, you know, and, and there, there seems to be, a, it seems to be that even though the kind of last official edition of the, of the Book of Common Prayer, the 1662, far post all of those major Reformation divisions and schisms and clarifications the ethos behind the prayer book tradition really kept itself rooted in in that early part of the Reformation, and I think that you know, almost contrary to what Moore said about the you know the pseudo antiquity, that actually kept the Anglican tradition in better touch with antiquity than the Lutherans or the Reformed, and certainly than the Anabaptists. Yeah, that's a good point. That sort of uh, liturgical continuity that was able to hold these debates um, through which we get our uh, 39 articles that are sort of, you know, um, expanded and then retracted and, and, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, it, it does seem... And then to get the 1662 as sort of the... Uh, a bookend, if you will, at the at the end of this period, um, after we've had you know civil war and, and and everything else, to say this is this is probably good, 
<laughs> and not to say that, that the final word um, has been said, but again, it kind of reflects this Anglican um, natural apprehension about um, saying too much such that it would be uh, demanded of normal Christian persons to be, to be believed for salvation. Right. And, and I think that that hesitation is good. That simplicity is good. And that it's one of the things that sort of irks me the most about other Christian communities is that they're placing what, to my mind, seems like... Uh, man-made dogmas as burdens on on good people's souls and uh, I'm not a big fan but all that is to say uh, yeah I do see that kind of that unique careful approach from the Anglican tradition and obviously um, there are others who with with a similar mind to be found on the continent. I think uh, Melanchthon had a, a very similar sort of outlook. Um, and and there are others as well. You know, uh, Bucer and, and others who, quite frankly, our reformers were reading quite a bit or right. interacting with directly. So um, all of that is to say, I think there was something just a little different about the way things went down on the in the English Isles, and uh, my my takeaway from this essay is that even where I disagreed with more, I knew why I did, and I sort of enjoyed doing it. Do <laughs> yeah, I I would very much agree with that statement. Yeah, this that that's that's a good way to put it, um, and. And and some some of that I mean even 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 with that let let's say I had I had come to this essay for the first time ten years ago, when I had not, you know, read, Hooker or Jewel or mm-hmm. Usher or or even much of Cranmer, um, and certainly none of the Caroline divines, I I might have just kind of, taken it whole hog, but I don't think that it would have been a damaging thing to do. Like I don't think I would have I would have um, left what's in this essay and come across with some you know rabid, highly partisan form of of Anglicanism. Right. Even uh, even where it seems to err, it does so in a in a way that doesn't exactly. Um, lead to cage stage Anglicanism or <laughs> or anything along those lines, um, and I don't I don't see a whole lot of cage stage Anglicans. I mean, so, so, I mean, you just don't see it in the same way. And most of those that kind of do come into this with a cage stage are the ones that you know in a year and a half are going to be in Rome or the East. Yeah, you're right. Cage stage Anglicanism is. Or yeah, what I would would think of, is, and I think you are in agreement, is is yeah, are these guys who basically are looking for the perfect church? Yeah. And um, boy, I don't know why they'd end up here, but <laughs> yeah, because from from the get go, that was our admission: is that we are not the perfect church. <laughs> right. Ideally, Absolutely. we wouldn't exist. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think. Um, I almost appreciate sort of having the the specter of of Henry the Eighth because it keeps 
it keeps Anglicans humble in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, and it keeps us from these sort of weird claims about being, oh, we have this great succession from so-and-so, and, and therefore we don't make mistakes. And I just think, fooey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. Well, I'm very much looking forward to moving on to another text and to taking breaks along the way to discuss um, other articles and issues as the miserable offenders are wont to do. And of course, if we can get Andrew back on the show again, that'll be fun too. Absolutely. Yeah. Ne- next time, maybe it'll be all three of us again. Here's hoping. Say a prayer, listener. <laughs> all right, Father. Well, it was good while it lasted, but I think it's time to bid Mr. Moore adieu. Indeed. Farewell to this one. Yep. And we'll see what's around the corner. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again today glory of Jesus Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.